Hi, I'm Rebecca Hepp, Editor-in-Chief of Retina Today, and I want to welcome you to this episode of New Retina Radio. Today, we're talking with a panel of experts about the recent advances in gene therapy for wet AMD. Joining me as a moderator for this roundtable is Dr. Alan Ho, Retina Today's Chief Medical Editor. Alan? Thank you, Rebecca. I'm Alan Ho. I'm the Director of Retina Research at Will's Eye Hospital, and I'm very excited to be here with some of the experts uh, in the country on gene therapy for retinal diseases. Why don't we start with a quick introduction uh, from each of you identifying who you are and where your institution is. We'll start with Bob Avery. Hi, Bob Avery. I'm from California Retina Consultants based in Santa Barbara, California, and we are participating in uh, several of the gene therapy trials for AMD. Hi, I'm, I'm Peter Campuchero. I'm the Eccles Professor of uh, ophthalmology and neuroscience at Johns Hopkins University. Hi, I'm Jeff Heyer. I'm the director of the Retina Service and Retina Research at Ophthalmic Consultants of Boston. Hi, I'm Salard Keish. I'm the Bob and Dolores Hope, uh, Robert M. Eldsworth Distinguished Associate Professor at Weill Cornell in New York City. I'm Charles Wyckoff, Retina Specialist, Director of Research at Retina Consultants of Texas in Houston, Texas. Thanks everybody for joining us today. Uh, our topic is gene therapy, and we're going to fo focus on uh, age-related macular degeneration. But gene therapy has really gone from science fiction to science fact. Although many retina specialists don't use gene therapy right now, there is an approved therapy, as most of you are aware, Spark Therapeutics uh, Veritagene for labor congenital amaurosis, RP65 mutation. But Gene therapy has evolved from gene replacement to gene therapy for potential ocular biofactory, for example, creating an ocular biofactory for anti-VEGF. And we've got some history in this in failed trials. Um, many of you have heard about Avalanche, which did not work, but things are getting better. And uh, maybe I'll ask Charlie Wyckoff to kind of set the stage for where we are today with these next generation clinical trials and therapies. Thanks, Alan. Great to be here with all of you guys. It really is an exciting time. You know, if we if we step away from the monogenetic inherited retinal diseases, which you alluded to there, Alan, there's certainly a lot of uh, amazing treatments in in trials there beyond the FDA approved um, treatment, and focus today on the common. Uh, diseases that are being investigated as potential treatments um, uh, with gene therapy, there are really two big categories I would put out there. First of all, there are um, therapeutics looking at treating our exudative retinal diseases, creating an intraocular biofactory, producing an anti-VEGF protein, and there's two of those we'll talk about. And then there are different therapeutics under investigation to treat geographic atrophy, to slow down the progression of geographic atrophy. And for the sake of brevity here, focusing on the two creating an anti-VEGF agent, there's ADVM022, which is producing essentially um, a flibercept following a intravitreal injection. And then there's RGX314, which produces essentially ranibizumab following subretinal delivery, either using a suprachoroidal injection in the office or direct subretinal delivery during a vitrectomy in the operating room. Both of these programs in wet AMD have enrolled patients who are anti-VEGF responsive and have in most cases received many months, many years of repeated intravitreal anti-VEGF injections. So these are really your high need anti-VEGF patients in these trials. 
Um, both of these are relatively early stage trials for which we have data to digest. ADVM022 is a phase one trial involving 30 patients and RGX314 is a phase one 2A trial involving 42 patients um, uh, with, with up to three plus years of follow-up. Um, and we've seen fascinating data here. We've seen strong efficacy signals. We've seen safety signals also in both of these programs to talk about um, and, and discuss. Some of these were, were unexpected. And then both of these programs are moving forward, both in wet AMD, as well as other exudative retinal diseases, DME and diabetic retinopathy in particular. So certainly an exciting time. It really is an exciting time. And, and maybe nobody has more context of this since he was involved in some of the first generation wet AMD clinical trials for AMD. Um, Jeff, do you want to give us some perspective and some of your thoughts on why these current trials seem to be doing better than the first generation trials that, uh, that were out there for wet AMD? So I think as Charlie so eloquently described, we've come a long way. The, the early studies looked at certain patients and looked at the gene therapy in terms of certain loads of the gene therapy product. And we saw certain levels of efficacy and we saw certain issues in terms of perhaps not getting the expression we needed and also not getting the delivery we needed. And in each of those studies, we've learned from, learned from them. So for instance, Genzyme early on had a study that looked at um, a soluble S-flit with, uh, with an AAV2 vector. And we saw that we did get efficacy signals and Peter and I um, were heavily involved in those, but we also saw that we didn't get the, the level of efficacy that we wanted. Uh, Avalanche, which was alluded to, didn't have uh, quite the efficacy and there probably were issues with delivery there and standardization of the delivery. And so we've taken the lessons from each of those and developed vectors, which are better, standardized approaches, which are um, better able to consistently deliver the gene therapy product where we want it and how we want it. And in each of those cases, that's enabled us to have um, greater efficacy and greater delivery of the gene therapy product. Peter, you're quite involved with the viral vectors and the affinities of those vectors for different tissues. Can you speak a little to that as to why we might, why this might be sticking to the wall today? Viruses are uh, very good at getting into cells and getting into the nucleus. And they, the viral capsid binds to certain molecules on a cell in order to enter that cell. And different serotypes of AAV bind to different uh, uh, molecules on the surface. So AAV2 binds to heparin sulfate proteoglycan. And in the subretinal space, there's a, a lot of that. And uh, so as a result, AAV2 injected into the subretinal space enters photoreceptors and RPE cells really well. Um, but when you inject AV2 into the suprachoroidal space, uh, there's not as much heparin sulfate proteoglycan on the basal surface of RPE cells compared to the apical surface. And so it doesn't really enter very well. And in the vitreous cavity, uh, 
the problem is the internal limiting membrane and AV2 binds to the internal limiting membrane, which prevents it from entering into the retina very well to transduce cells. Slard, um, you're, you've been involved with uh, all these programs and maybe you can give us a little detail on the Advarum program and what they're finding so far, what we're finding in that intravitreal program. Sure, Alan, thank you for uh, having me here. You know, I think of viral vectors uh, coming in two different forms. There's the naturally occurring viral vectors where we think about AV2, AV8, AV9. You can also combine different naturally occurring viral vectors. AVRH10 is a combination of a naturally occurring human vector and a naturally occurring monkey vector. That's one set of vectors. When you think about engineered vectors, there's different ways that one can engineer non-naturally occurring vectors. Two of the ones that I'm most familiar with are AAV7M8. AV7M8 has just a little change in the viral capsid, and that perhaps changes the way that it's able to get into the retinal cells via an intravitreal route. LSV1 is another engineered viral vector. That too can get in not only through the retina, but to the outer retina. When we think about the program, the optic program and the infinity program from Adverum, we think about a vector construct called ADVM022. ADVM022 has a capsid that consists of that AV7M8, the engineered vector, with a known anti-VEGF molecule, something akin to a flibercept. And the concept here is to allow AV7M8 to be administered via an in-office intravitreal injection to get into the retina, to transduce the retinal cells to make sufficient quantities of a flibercept. And that's what the OPTIC trial is trying to do in patients who are non-treatment naive for macular degeneration. So, so the top line results, you know, early uh, phase one, as we mentioned, I think Charlie mentioned earlier, it shows that there's a significant decrease in treatment burden. You take patients who sometimes require injections every six, seven, eight weeks, even at that interval, not having quote unquote control of activity, and you turn them into patients who have a one and done. Now there is no free lunch, right? And so what is the no free lunch in this case? In the optic trial, there is a signal of inflammation and how that inflammation is gonna be treated and whether it's controllable is gonna determine the target product profile of O22. In the first two cohorts of OPTIC, the patients were treated with oral steroid. So starting with oral steroid before the injection was given from the gene therapy vector and continuing for some time after. It was decided that oral steroids may not be necessary as they do in the spark Lux Turner trial. And the oral steroid regimen was changed to a topical steroid drop regimen where diflupredinate was given before the gene therapy is injected and continued for some time. I think it's to be determined what that uh, steroid regimen is and how to control the inflammatory reaction that is seen in certain patients who are injected with O22. Bob, you've been involved um, in both of these clinical programs as well. Do you wanna give us some highlights on the Regenix program and where we are today? Sure, my pleasure. Thanks again for having me here as well. Uh, the Regenix program is uh, very exciting in that they have been able to use five different uh, cohorts to do the dose escalation to find 
the right dose to allow um, efficacy, and they've not really achieved uh, too much in the way of inflammation. They have encountered a little bit of a side effect with some peripheral pigmentary change, but um, in the higher doses. But at these higher doses, uh, cohort five, they had over an 80% reduction in the need for reinjection and the protein levels they measured in each of these cohorts. And it really is a, a good indicator of the efficacy of uh, this therapy. We have a dose response curve of increasing protein, which is, as you said, similar to ranibizumab uh, that is uh, measured in the aqueous and highly correlates with uh, the efficacy of this therapy. And at the cohort uh, three, four, and five, these levels are, are therapeutic in many of the patients. Um, I do think that the subretinal injection offers some advantages and some disadvantages. You have to uh, take the patient to the operating room. And obviously that's a disadvantage over the intravitreal injection of the other Adverum trial. But the advantage is the subretinal space is a bit immune protected uh, and we're not seeing any significant inflammation, uh, at least uh, in the trials thus far with this technique. And the patients, uh, if the patient has pre-existing uh, neutralizing antibodies, that does not seem to have any effect on the efficacy in this, in this study. If anything, the protein levels were slightly higher uh, in patients who had pre-existing neutralizing antibodies, but that doesn't necessarily uh, mean anything with this small number. But it's very exciting to see a marked reduction in the injection frequency in these patients uh, with uh, very little in the way of inflammation, if any. Charlie, if something like a gene therapy were to be potentially a one and done and available, where do you think this would fit in your patient population? That's an important clinically relevant question. And I, I think that from my perspective, the more tools in the toolbox, the better, right? To have more options to manage patients, I think is a good thing. We're moving into a, into a direction where individualized therapy is gonna become more and more important as we have more options. And I would just sort of double down on the point that I think has been made repeatedly, which is that we're still looking at very early stage data here. So long-term outcomes are gonna be critical. These might be one and done, but if you're changing the local physiology and biology in a way that long-term may be, you know, who knows, pro-inflammatory over time, damaging, I, I don't know. I don't know where this is going to go. I, I do know that I, this is a little bit off topic, but I think fascinating, right? There was a Time magazine in the 1990s that promised that, you know, genetic therapies were just around the corner, five years away. And here we are 20 plus years later with actually very few genetic therapies in all of medicine. And so I think we as a field have been over-promising gene therapies for too long. And I'm a little hesitant to do that now. We're looking at phase one slash two, eight data. And I think we have a tremendous amount to learn. We've learned so much in the last couple of years through both of these programs that have fundamentally changed how these programs have moved forward. I don't think we're done learning. Jeff, we've worked on some strategies to get delivery to the subretinal space without creating a retinotomy. And the one of the maybe the compelling side for this is cell therapies where egress of cells have caused significant problems like epiretinal membranes are even worse, like traction retinal detachments. Do you want to talk a little bit about that 
particular method and where it's fitting in for potential delivery of gene therapy for AMD? Sure. And that, that's been a project that you and I have been a part of for, I would guess now it's probably six years or so. And as you said, this was a, a technique where you made a, a superchoroidal, you made a scleral cut down and you entered the superchoroidal space. And then you teased a cannula posteriorly until, till, until you got close to the arcade. And then at the arcades, you would introduce a needle that had a curve to it and that needle would go into the subretinal space. And it's a, it, this took several years to, to design it and work on the standardization of it and work on making it safe and reproducible. And that technique has evolved even more over the past couple of years. It's a technique, as you said, that was initially used in cell-based therapies because the, the cell-based therapy, when present in the vitreous cavity, caused tremendous scarring. And I think, from what I remember, led to PVR in about a third of those cases. But the beauty or the elegance of this approach is it lets you do this without entering the intraocular cavity. So you're not running the risk of developing cataracts as you are when you do a vitrectomy. You are not allowing the, the delivered therapy into the vitreous cavity if there are untoward effects of that as well, whether that's inflammation or such. And you're delivering this into the space that you believe will allow the best expression. So Peter talked about the advantages of certain deliveries and certain vectors in the certain spaces. This is another elegant way of doing that. Again, coming to the point that the, the more weapons we have in our arsenal, the more approaches we have to delivering different therapies, the greater the likelihood of achieving success in the long run. I've told my patients, and probably you all have too, that I have no weapon to fix aging in your eye. Even if you have wet macular generation, I might be able to control the leakage, but I may not be able to control atrophy. If you have atrophy, until recently, we had no positive signals. We had many failures actually in atrophic AMD, but now we're getting into this period where immunomodulation of complement pathways seems to give us at least some kind of a weak weapon, something that the patients will appreciate because they'll want better vision, but the slowing the growth of atrophy is one potential major step towards the management of this entire disease, wet or dry. And now we have a gene therapy that's exploring that Charlie, do you want to highlight that a little bit? Yeah, so you're referring to the gyroscope program. Yeah, I, I you know, I think that gene therapy for the dry component of, of AMD, actually maybe if you just stepped back and didn't think about where we are, but where you could be, it might make more sense than the wet part. Because if you develop portal neovascularization, many of those patients don't need monthly dosing and they, and they, they can do well in prospective trials out two months, three months, even longer in some cases 
certainly there's a large number of patients that do need very, very frequent dosing, but the atrophy progresses in all of these patients or nearly all of them based on prospective data. And so we're seeing that, we're seeing that shift with the anti-VEGF agents in countries that have single payer systems, there's very good data. When you do use them, you change the epidemiology of blindness. Fewer people are going blind around the world because of our anti-VEGF agents. And the geographic atrophy is becoming a greater unmet need as we unmask it. Um, and so I think it makes a lot of sense to use gene therapy and geographic atrophy. And the two approaches that I'm aware of pursuing this are the gyroscope approach, uh, which, is, which is delivering a vector that is really trying to upregulate a downregulator of the pathway. It's trying to overexpress complement factor I, which is sort of a natural regulator, a natural downregulator of the pathway. In other words, you're not trying to completely shut down complement, um, the complement cascade by inhibiting C3 or inhibiting C5, for example, which are both in phase three trials now. Um, rather, you're trying to block it more upstream and sort of limit the overactivation while allowing some natural physiologic activation of the complement cascade when needed. It's a very elegant approach. It's a very targeted approach. And I, I, I hope that it's successful. It's still very early in clinical um, trial uh, progress. So I think um, that the future of that will probably partially depend on the results of the ongoing phase three trials for C3 and C5 inhibition, because at least from my perspective, if those do not work, it would be unlikely in my mind that upregulation of CFI would work. I thought it's interesting that that um, Apellis and Iveric both are showing uh, an increased risk of choroidal neovascularization as a potential side effect of their treatment. Do you, I, it, it tells me that maybe something is working. Um, Peter, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, Alan, I think yeah, you may be right. I think what it, what it suggests is, uh, and there's other evidence to suggest this, that Coronal neovascularization may actually uh, be adaptive. Uh, there's, you know, dropout of the choriocapillaris, uh, and that causes ischemia of the outer retina. And if really severe, that results in geographic atrophy. If somewhat less severe, you get, you know, hypoxia of the outer retina, which stimulates increased VEGF and choroidal neovascularization. And in these programs where you're uh, basically um, inhibiting or, or possibly slowing down the geographic atrophy, you may be allowing that tissue to be somewhat less ischemic. And as a result, uh, you get more uh, upregulation of VEGF and more choroidal neovascularization. And, and the, the other evidence that sort of points in that direction is that we see that in patients who are treated with anti-VEGFs, uh, those that develop uh, macular atrophy, frequently, if you look at the area where the atrophy is developed, it's areas where the choroidal neovascularization has regressed. And that suggests that the choroidal neovascularization was actually providing some benefit to that tissue. So I think there is a, you know, a, a potentially a reasonable explanation for why in those programs they might have an increase in coronal neovascularization. And it may not be all bad. And, you know, so I think we have to keep an open mind about that. And uh, I, would, I would be fine with trading a treatable component of the disease for a previously untreatable component. That's really well said. Um, 
Bob, we, we may have um, a bi-specific, we may have uh, for a bi-specific in combination with anti-VEGF, we may have a port delivery system. We have a world with limited resources, healthcare resources in particular relevant for our discussion. How do you think the system is going to pay for this? How, how will we be able to get these potential treatments to our patients? Well, that's a very good question, Alan. We don't, we don't, uh, we don't know for sure. Um, many of these new developments are going to be put to the healthcare system as saving money by uh, being used less frequently. For instance, these uh, drugs, for instance, the uh, bispecific or the uh, Kodiak drug, which may each of them may last three months, four months, something of that sort. Who knows exactly in practice how long? But the studies are very encouraging that we're going to get a much longer durability of effect than we have with our current agents. And so because of that, they may be billed as saving money uh, because they're able to be given less frequently. The same could be said for some of these one and done therapies we've been discussing with uh, Adverum and uh, Regenex. If we are able to dramatically, dramatically reduce the uh, treatment burden, uh, depending upon the charge, uh, it could be uh, somewhat cost-effective in some regards, but uh, our healthcare system is under a lot of stress, not just from ophthalmology, but from an aging population and advances in every field with the biologics. So it is a really difficult question. But uh, the beauty of what we're looking at with gene therapy is hopefully we'll be able to not only reduce the treatment burden, which is a drain on the patient's time and the doctor's time, uh, but also develop, uh, deliver better outcomes for people uh, and maybe, maybe in a cost-effective fashion. The, the demand, whether it's the diabetic other pandemic that is going on or the aging population um, is really driving a lot of resources and investment into our retina clinical trial ecosystem, so to speak. And we're seeing, you know, we have these smaller companies like Adverum and Regenex, Gyroscope, but also bigger companies that are just beginning to look at the major retinal diseases we're talking about, not just inherited retinal degenerations, not to trivialize those, those are important um, and help inform our strategies for gene therapy for larger, um, more major diseases, but strategics like Allergan, um, Roche and Spark, Janssen are all kind of beginning to come into this arena. So we're gonna see resources poured into this in investments because, because vision matters and because we have demographics that are driving um, the need for, for better treatments. Let me go around for some summary comments and I'll start with uh, Jeffrey. So I, as everybody said, this is a very exciting time and, and gene therapy is certainly at the heart of that. One thing to keep in mind is we may be on the verge of a treatment for dry AMD. If ever there was a role for gene therapy, it would be dry AMD. You know, we treat wet AMD, we know we're under treating those, but we still have biomarkers that tell us if we can alleviate that under treatment with some extension of the treatment. 
there is no possibility for doing that in dry AMD. If the study says you have to treat monthly, you have to treat monthly forever, and there's no biomarker to tell you you can change that. So gene therapy, as well um, guided and intentioned as it is for wet AMD, could be really critical for dry AMD. Clark? Alan, I think that we've entered the new realm of gene therapy as a drug delivery platform. And I think this is the only place that I'm aware of anywhere in biology where that's the case. We're not taking an abnormal gene and trying to fix it in some way. You're actually using gene therapy as a therapeutic platform. I think it's exciting for us and it's exciting for the patients. But to echo what we've been saying, it's early. And you know the old saying in, in research, if you knew what you were doing, it wouldn't be called research. And so every time you take two steps forward, you take one step back and reevaluate how you can keep moving. I think as the programs have built upon the learnings from patients in previous programs, we've taken it further and further along. And that's really evidenced by the Regenix Bio and the Adverum program, who those two are entering pivotal trials. And I think that would be the first time in terms of gene therapy as a drug delivery platform entering pivotal trials. Peter, do you want to give us some comments? Yeah, well, I, uh, I agree with Szilard. I think that, uh, you know, we're uh, in retina uh, treatment, we're really forging ahead and learning that things that are going to help in other areas. So for instance, most of the treatments that we do for gene therapy in the eye are with transgenes that aren't soluble, they're not secreted. And so we, it's very difficult to know exactly what we're doing. So, you know, with uh, uh, Labor's congenital amaurosis, uh, we have to basically rely on how a patient responds. Are they a little bit more mobile and everything to, to know if we're actually expressing the way we should. But with these programs, we're actually able to measure the transgene and we can see, we're learning for the first time, is this gonna be a treatment where uh, it really is one and done, where you do the treatment and the expression is maintained you know, forever? Or is it going to wane? And you know, some of the initial findings are somewhat encouraging, but we really don't know yet. Charlie, I agree with everything that Peter Szilard and Jeff have said. And I think the other angle I would add is an encouraging sign is maybe taken for granted, but worth stating that, as far as I know, there have been no non-ocular adverse events attributable to any of these ocular gene therapies, which is critical, right? We're, we're as far as we know, we're not putting the systemic safety of our patients at risk here. We've learned a lot from ocular safety in all of the programs and we continue to learn, but from a systemic perspective, no concerning signals there so far, which is very encouraging. And the number I would put out just to emphasize the early stages here, I think by my back and napkin calculations, there have been between 100 and 200 patients treated with gene therapy across AMD, DR, DME, wet and dry AMD. So again, very, very early. I mean, think how many patients were treated with anti-VEGF agents before they were commercially available. It was obviously in the many thousands. And so we have a lot more to learn and it's an incredibly exciting time. And it, it's such a privilege to be able to work on these programs. Bob. Well, I can't uh, agree more with what everyone has said. Uh, I think in reference to Charlie's comments, I, I think the eye is an excellent organ for advancing gene therapy. It's its own self-contained organ 
with a nice window through it and our sophisticated technology for measuring thickness and, and, and such and measuring proteins. And I think it's a perfect, uh, perfect way of advancing gene therapy. And that's why the developments are really, uh, really starting in the eye. We've had a lion's share of advances. And I think we'll continue to see that because the eye is such a good uh, model for, for developing genes and not just transgenes, but uh, curing the diseases of the eye uh, directly or looking into neuroprotective agents for glaucoma and such. I, I think that the, the, uh, this, the, the, the beginning that we're just in right now is extremely exciting, but it's gonna get more exciting. I love the fact that I've got patients that now feel they've been quote cured of, of wet macular degeneration, even though I can try to convince them they're not, trying to get someone to come in over the COVID era, you know, who's gone a year or more without an injection after they were getting them every month for the previous few years, uh, it was hard. They were like, why should I come in? Uh, you're just going to look at me and say, you're doing great because that's what you did the last dozen times, you know? So it's really nice to have patients with that attitude, even though uh, past performance is no guarantee of the future, but uh, it's a, an extremely exciting time to be a part of this uh, advance of gene therapy in the eye. And uh, I can't be more excited about it. It's a real privilege to have these partners, um, colleagues, friends, together tonight uh, on this podcast. It is early and sometimes the road gets a little windy, but the science and the data that we're allowed to derive with the help of patients, with the help of ecosystem partners is how I put it, um, is really important uh, and vision is important. So I hope that always stands as a way to um, justify value of a potential new treatment. So I wanna thank everyone for being on this tonight. For those of the, you who aren't so up to date on gene therapy, we, we hope that this will uh, provoke your interest to, to look for these papers and presentations and articles and podcasts. And thank you to BMC for uh, arranging for this. Thank you very much. This has been a wonderful discussion and I wanna thank you all for joining us today. I would like to add that Adviram just announced a suspected, unexpected, serious adverse reaction in its Infinity Clinical Trial for DME. This event occurred in one patient 30 weeks after being treated with a single intravitreal injection of the high dose, and the patient developed hypotony with panuveitis and loss of vision in the treated eye. Adviram has decided to immediately unmask the Infinity study to better understand this event and to help identify and manage any similar potential risks to other patients. The company is also conducting a thorough review of data from the ADVM022 program and plans to report its findings as the analysis continues. This concludes today's episode on gene therapy for wet AMD. Please tune in for future episodes of New Retina Radio.